Uh, go ahead and take your Bible with me and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to bite off this whole chapter this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some on the table back there. I would encourage you to grab one so that you can have this text in front of you. Again, this is a relatively difficult text. We're going to tackle it all this morning. We're going to process through it together. Um, I'm going to give you a handful of thoughts about it. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. Let me read this for us. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has, ha- has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among, among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And, if, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you, are, as, you, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from, from among you. Now this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is, is a difficult one just because of the nature of it. Paul is addressing sin within the context of the church in, in Corinth. And he's shifting his attention away from where he was in the first four chapters, talking about unity, talking about the maturity of the body, talking about a handful of things pertaining to wisdom and power and, and the places where the Corinthians were Subscribing. Now, he goes to and turns his attention to an actual incident that's taking place in the context of the church in Corinth. And before we dive in this text, though, something that I want to talk about and something that we need to discuss as a congregation, as Buffalo City Church, something that we need to discuss is, in fact, our understanding of grace. Our understanding of grace. Because when we look at this text, this seems to be pretty heavy-handed. Paul is prescribing some pretty significant action because of the sin of this one man that he is is referring to. This report that he's received uh, brings about a pretty serious course of action, again, that Paul is prescribing. So we need to think about our understanding of grace and what what grace is, in fact, and then probably the application of it. What does it mean to apply grace to us in in the context in which we live or operate in our world? So grace, we would say, 
is a free gift, a free gift, something that is not something that is not earned, something that is not deserved, but is freely given to us. And the free gift of salvation comes to us through Christ Jesus if we repent and turn from our sin and 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 trust trust Jesus alone for reestablishment of right relationship with God. However, we often misapply grace, and this is what Paul is hinting at. Because if you remember a few chapters ago, uh, Paul was talking about the maturity in the life of the Corinthian body. And now what he's saying to them is their application of grace needs to grow up. Their application of grace needs to move away from an immature approach to a mature approach. Away from milk to solid food. That's what this text is about. It's about bringing about maturity in the life of the, of the body. Oftentimes, we assume that grace means, and an application of grace means, turning a blind eye to sin. That is not at all what this, this passage is about. It is not at all what this passage is about. And it's not what grace is or the application of it. If my kids were to put their hand on the stovetop, and the stovetop is cool, and I turn a blind eye to that, when they put their hand on it, when it is warm, they're likely to get burned. But if I point it out to them, uh, they will, the likelihood of their getting burned will diminish. And this is a grace to my children, to say, do not put your hand on the stovetop, even when it's cool. Because if it's warm, you'll get burned. And so for us as Christians, we must realize that grace wasn't God God turning a blind eye to sin. Grace wasn't God turning a blind eye to sin. That is not at all what grace is for us or how the Bible describes grace. God does not ever turn a blind eye to sin. And the full extent of God's wrath is set against sin. And so do not assume that your sin doesn't have a consequence, because it does. But the good news is this, and this is the gospel. Without this understanding that God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin, the gospel is is pretty, pretty flaccid. It's pretty impotent. But with the realization that God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin, we come to the realization that sin is paid for. The good news is this, if you've repented of your sin and really turned from it and trusted Jesus as the one who makes you right with God, all of that wrath that was set against your sin and that was due to you, that was owed to you, now comes down onto Jesus on your behalf. It was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And so God doesn't turn a blind eye to your sin. Your sin even now has a consequence. Your sin isn't meaningless. But if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and turned from it and trusted Jesus, the full weight of God's wrath was poured out on him instead of you. That is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that not a drop of God's wrath will land on you. Not a drop of God's wrath will land on you. This is not God turning a blind eye to sin. It's him redirecting it onto his son on your behalf. If you're in Christ, again, the full punishment for your sin went on to Jesus on the cross. Jesus is a well-constructed roof in a torrential downpour. Not a drop of God's wrath sneaks through. You remain safe and dry. But make no mistake, there is rain. 
there is rain. The fool says it's sunny outside when the downpour comes. The wise understands what the roof is protection from. The grace of God provided Jesus to shelter us from the wrath of God, but the immature Christian gives little, little, uh, little consideration to that fact. The immature Christian says and says, he says, after he sins, there's grace for that. The mature Christian recognizes that the result of grace, yes, there is grace for that, but the result of grace is the freedom to not go on sinning. So when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have to bear that in mind because we see grace in action in a way that, that we probably in our, in our own minds wouldn't apply it immediately because it comes to us in something that we frequently call church discipline. This is what Paul is, is describing to, to the church in Corinth. Now church discipline doesn't sound like grace again when it hits our ears, but the reality is that it is. And we must see how the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to address the Corinthians about sin in their midst. This is not something you're probably going to hear on Caleb this week. But the reality is, it is absolutely essential for a church to understand how sin affects her. So I'm going to give you a handful of thoughts this morning from this text. I'm going to give you five total thoughts. And you're saying, five, we're going to be here all day. I promise they're a little shorter than usual. So here we go. I'm going to give you five thoughts. These are the five thoughts coming out of this, this text. Firstly, we must mourn sin. Secondly, we must properly identify sin. Third, unrepentant sin must be addressed. Fourth, the way sin is handled is different inside and outside the church. And fifth, we must live in light of Christ's sacrifice. So, so five things. First of all, we must mourn sin. We must mourn sin. Look at me what Paul writes in the first two verses. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Paul's almost, ex- he's, he's, he's like beside himself, right? He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of not even tolerated among pagans for a man has his father's wife. That's what he says. There's this case of sexual immorality occurring in the church and Paul highlights the severity of it by saying a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. He highlights the severity of it by pointing out to the world and saying people who, people who are sinners and, and those who don't have any kind of moral standards, they wouldn't even put up with this activity, but you will. And even they see it as wrong on the outside. This is a, a, an incestuous relationship that a man has with his, wife, or his father's wife. This is probably a reference to his stepmother. But regardless, it's a mess. And in verse 2, Paul is again beside himself. He says, and you are arrogant. Why does he say that? Why does he say, and you are arrogant? Now, again, our understanding of grace and the idea of the application of grace is going to be important here because as we go up this scale, as we walk up the tier here, we're going to see that this is probably what's going on in the, in the Corinthians' mind. The, the Corinthians thought that grace made them unaccountable. They thought that grace made them unaccountable, and they thought that they could put up with sin in their midst because they'd become recipients of God's grace. And in their maturity, they said, a man has his, is sleeping with his father's wife. There's grace for that. And they thought that correction would run counter to the free grace that came to them. Well, there's just extend grace. But Paul says it's quite the opposite. 
He says it's quite the opposite because of the very next phrase, the question that he asks in verse 2. He says, ought you not rather mourn? Ought you not rather mourn? And right belief is accompanied by right practice. This is important. This is vital. Right belief is accompanied by right practice. The grace here isn't that sin is overlooked. The grace here is that Jesus paid for it and granted the ability to be free from it, not to be unaccountable in it. Jesus said himself in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this is not a mourning of a loss of a loved one or a cherished possession. This is a mourning of the state of sin and its devastating effects on the individual and on the world. If you're with us back in 2017, which seems like a lifetime ago now, we're back with us in 2017. We talked about the Beatitudes. We spent time in the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about the Beatitudes. And you'll remember that that word blessed also can be translated, can be translated happy. Happy. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And happy for those who, or are those who mourn may sound like an oxymoron. But the reality, the reality that sin is paid for and the effects of sin are defeated that can create happiness in us while also mourning the sin in and around us. Because the end result for those who are mourned is comfort. A never-ending rest in the presence of God. That is what's promised to us. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Paul says, ought you not rather mourn? The second thing that we see in this text is that we must properly identify sin. Again, as a church, we must properly identify sin. What is sin? What is sin? In a sermon John Piper preached, he said it like this. He said, Sinning is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all things. At the bottom of sin, the root of all sinning is such a heart, a heart that prefers anything above God. A heart that does not treasure God over all other persons and all other things. And Piper's definition is just rooted in the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. God simply says, you shall have no other gods before me. So anytime you place yourself or something other than God in God's rightful place in your life, that's sin. And so our example in 1 Corinthians is a man engaged in sexual immorality. He's having improper relations with his stepmother. Why is this sin? And I doubt that any of you in this room would, would, would go against that, would dispute that. But why? But why? Because this man has elevated his personal pleasure, his personal pleasures to a place that drives his actions. He prefers this personal pleasure above God, and then he acts accordingly. So again, not many of you would dispute that this is in fact sin, this situation that's outlined here in 1 Corinthians 5. But what about sex before marriage? And we say, well, let's not be prudes, it's 2019. The Bible is clear that sex is intended for a marriage relationship. Therefore, sex before marriage is a violation of God's intent for sex. What about casually viewing pornography? 
What about thinking that thought about that man or woman at work who's not your husband or wife? These are sin because they show a preference for personal pleasures above God. When we get here, we have to make a note that this has nothing to do with traditional views of sex and sexuality. If you make a cultural argument, well, so many decades ago, this wasn't a big deal. This is the way it's always been. The cultural argument will come back and bite you. Things are different in 2019. Christian, wake up. Things are different in 2019. Don't make an argument from 1950. If you're relying on traditional views to help you identify sin, it's time to graduate. Sin is a violation of God's intent for you and to acknowledge and live like he's your greatest treasure. Friends, that standard is timeless. That standard is timeless. The standard of a few decades past will become a footnote in a textbook. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Make God's standard your standard. Not something from a few decades past. The church has largely become irrelevant in our culture. And this is not a moment for head nods. This is a moment for solemn self-reflection. The church has largely become irrelevant in our culture. Because people sitting in pews and chairs and reclining theater seats haven't been made to deal with their sin. They've been empowered to ignore it and have been told it's okay. Because when the church lets its guard down and begins to blow in the winds of cultural change, we boast in our sin and we don't mourn it. Like Paul tells the Corinthians to do. And when we boast in it, we don't mourn it, we lose the ability to identify it. And we must properly identify sin. We must do it in ourselves and we must be willing to do it in our brothers and in our sisters in Christ. That cuts against the grain of our individualistic conditioning. And friends, you will do this and you will get labeled toxic, you will get labeled judgmental, you will get labeled intolerant. But not allowing sin to persist in a brother or sister is grace and it's not judgment. And we must properly identify sin. And our standard must be the word of God for that identification process. Other standards will give indeterminable results. Thirdly then, thirdly, unrepentant sin must be addressed. And this is largely the thrust of what Paul is saying here in this text. Unrepentant sin must be addressed in the context of the local church. Now it is clear from the text that the man engaged in the sin that Paul is writing about is not repentant. He is not repenting. He's been made to either ignore it or just continue on and, they've, they've, and maybe the church has just ignored it. But because he's not repentant, this is what that means. It means that he is openly living in sin. He's not turned away from it. He's not turned away from this incestuous relationship he's engaged in. He doesn't seem to see it as an issue. And so Paul prescribes action in verse 2. He says, uh, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then again in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. And we say, wow, Paul, that seems really harsh. But there's a process here that we need to be aware of. This is going on under the surface. We, we know this is true because Jesus talks about it. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus says this. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every change may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be, be to you as a Gentile or as a tax collector. So this is within the context of the church. Jesus is talking about now, in the context of the church, if, if a person doesn't listen, if someone is in sin, go to that person directly and address it. And that person doesn't listen, take two or three others and address the sin. And if that person still doesn't listen, take it before the whole congregation. And if those steps are accomplished and no repentance is present, remove him or her to the outside of the church. Now there's a lot to say here about how this practically plays out. But for our purposes this morning, let me say this. This is a process for church discipline given in the New Testament. And while it sounds harsh, again, it is a, a grace. Because the goal of church discipline, the goal of church discipline is always, should always be repentance and restoration. The goal of church discipline should always be repentance and restoration. Not an authoritarian, I'm right, you're wrong type situation. But a desire to see someone engaged in sin turn from that sin and be brought back into good standing with brothers and sisters and before God. And why is the goal of this repentance and restoration? Because Jesus says it is. Because Jesus says it is right in that Matthew 18 passage. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is implied at every stage. But in the case of Paul and the Corinthians, it would seem that the whole church is aware of the sin and no repentance is present. So Paul says it's time to remove the man from the church. Paul says it's those inside the church that they are to judge. Grace is not turning a blind eye to sin. But God, grace is given to see sin and turn from it. And friends, God uses human means a lot. We ask the question, like, who am I to point out someone else's sin? God, God chooses to use human means inside the church to make us aware of our sinful activity, our sinful tendencies. Would we, demonstrate the, would we demonstrate the grace of God shown to us by not allowing sin to linger? Will we sincerely address sin in our own lives and the lives of others that we may grow in Christian maturity and in faith? As the local church, friends, we must. We must. Fourth thing then this morning, the way sin is handled is different inside and outside the church. Go down the page to verses 9, or 9 through 13. Consider what Paul writes here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then in verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of this world. Paul says, not those who are in the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. This is not just limited to sexual immorality, but it, it goes on to, to other general sins. They are of the world that's different. And Paul is talking about those who are actively engaging in unrepentant sin in the church itself. That's what this text is about. Not about those on the outside, but those who are inside. 
Anyone who bears the name of brother, if he or she is actively living in unrepentant sin, don't even eat with that person. Now, in the ancient world, eating with people was, was a sign of fellowship and acceptance. So Paul is saying that, that sin had broken that fellowship. Sin has broken fellowship. So Paul says, judge those inside the church, but not outside. And God has set it up so that the church is to judge itself, but God is the judge on the outside. Why is this the case? A couple of reasons. First, the church is made up of those who are professing believers. If you, if you seek church membership anywhere, the first question that you should be asked to respond to is, is how you became a Christian. And Christians, we are called to put, to put, put sin to death in our lives. And those who are outside of the church, those who not professed faith in Christ, well, you might say, I have a friend who's a Christian who doesn't go to church. And going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Free gift of God. But the New Testament assumes that everyone who is a Christian is also part of a local church. The New Testament doesn't have a category for a churchless Christian. We have that category in 2019. It's a problem. So Paul says, sin in the church, take care of it, get rid of it, place that person on the outside if there's unrepentance, and then God will deal with it on the outside. Sin outside the church, leave it to God. He'll take care of it. So our posture is to expect that sin is going outside of the church. We expect that sin is going on outside the church. But we must be vigilant to ensure that it's not running rampant throughout the church. And in both cases, we desire to see repentance and restoration with people outside the church who are under the judgment of God, who have yet to trust Christ. We desire to see repentance and restoration. So we bring them the good news of the gospel. Within the church, if sin is, sin is actively being engaged in by an individual in the context of the church, we seek restoration and repentance because we desire for Jesus to be Lord of their life. And not to be enslaved, to submit to a yoke of slavery, of sin, that they were delivered from. So people inside the church, we hold each other accountable to live lives of repentance and pray when sin does get the better of us that we would be quick to identify it and quick to turn from it. So that's the fourth thing. The fifth thing then this morning is we must live in light of Christ's sacrifice. Go right into the heart of this text with me. Look at right at verse 6, 7, and 8. Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is, what is Paul talking about here? What, what is this about? The Corinthians' biggest problem, again, this is the Corinthians' biggest problem, is that they are allowing this man to continue in his unrepentant sin, and then they're boasting in it because they're not viewing properly the sacrifice of Jesus. And he says, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
in verse 6. And what does Paul mean by that? If you add a little leaven or a little yeast to your bread dough, it takes over the whole lump of, of dough. And so what Paul is saying is that it's the same is true with sin. If sin in the body of Christ remains unchecked, it spreads throughout the whole church. So Paul tells the Corinthians to remove that leaven. Now, he's also talking about the Passover, right, the festival. So Paul tells the Corinthians to move the leaven. Now, unleavened bread was used during the Passover, which is a celebration of the passing over of the Israelite homes in Egypt during the 10th plague, which was the death of the firstborn son in each home. But the homes of the Israelites were passed over if they marked the doorposts with the blood of a lamb that was sacrificed. And what this text is about, what this text is about, these verses here, 6, six through 8, is that Jesus becomes the fulfillment of this event. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of this event. We then, as those who are in Christ, are marked by the blood of the Lamb, Christ's blood. He is our sacrificial Lamb. We will not die, but have everlasting life. The Passover is also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the Israelites, when they were freed from slavery, they didn't have enough time to let the bread dough rise when Pharaoh freed them and they fleed. Exodus 12, 34 says, they took the dough before it was leavened and they left Egypt. And so again, the question is, why does Paul mention this? What, why does this find itself right in the middle of this, this text? And friends, track with me here because if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Because this is incredible. The Israelites, in that moment, when they fled Egypt, when Pharaoh uh, when Pharaoh freed them and they fled Egypt, they were living in light of the sacrifice. They were living in light of the sacrifice of a lamb and its blood that marked their doorposts. They did not stay in those homes. When Pharaoh freed them, they left. They ran. They moved on. Their freedom had been purchased and death had passed them over. A lamb was sacrificed and its blood marked their doorposts and death did not come to the families of the Israelites. And the same again is true for us. Jesus, the Lamb of God, sacrificed in our place and death is no longer our future. We ask the question then, how then should we live? How then should we live? We should live in light of the sacrifice. And what does that look like? I'm going to give you three things. What does it look like to live in light of the sacrifice of Jesus? Three things that the Corinthians needed to apply to themselves. Three things. First, we are free. We are free. We see this clearly in the Passover. The sacrifice of a lamb for the Israelites brought about the freedom from slavery in Egypt. For us, friends, the sacrifice of Jesus for us brought about our freedom for sin. Therefore, we should live free from sin both individually and corporately. Both individually and corporately. We should live free from sin because the sacrifice of Jesus purchased that freedom for us. Second thing, 
Living in light of the sacrifice looks like fleeing. We are to flee. The sacrifice of a lamb for the Israelites allowed them to flee, and they didn't have time for the bread to even rise. The sacrifice of Jesus allows us to flee from sin, signified by the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth that Paul talks about in verse 8. The Israelites flee from Egypt because of the sacrifice made for them of a lamb. The sacrifice of Jesus frees us from sin and causes us to flee from sin itself. This is an urgent task. Sin can't be dealt with when we get around to it. Living in light of Christ's sacrifice means snuffing it out as soon as it's revealed. Finally, living in light of sacrifice is the recognition that we are holy. That we are holy. The sacrifice of a lamb for the Israelites made them holy or set them apart. That's what holy means. Set apart. And now there were no longer in the middle of Egypt, bound into slavery. The Israelites no longer enslaved in Egypt. They were their own people. They were headed to a land promised to them by God as an inheritance. So the sacrifice of the Lamb for the Israelites made them holy. The sacrifice of Jesus for us makes us holy. It sets us apart. It cleanses us of our sin and makes us right before God. We are no longer of the world We are markedly different. We are God's people set apart for God's purposes. We are holy. That is the definition of the church. And we are headed into new creation. That is our destination and inheritance promised to us because of the shed blood of Jesus. It is to come and it is our inheritance. It is the inheritance for all who are in Christ. We must live with the sacrifice of Jesus in mind. The sacrifice of Jesus sets us free from sin. It causes us to be free to flee from sin with urgency. And it sets us apart with an inheritance that we will have in new creation. So in conclusion, we look at this text and we say, what, what do we do to apply this? Well, I think those three things that I just gave you serve as application. Living in light of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Living in light of the sacrifice on our behalf. So again, we are free. Sin no longer enslaves us. When we're in Christ, sin no longer enslaves us. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, it no longer enslaves them either. When we talk about a passage that tells us to call out sin in our brothers and sisters, it's a call to think about the freedom that we have in Christ. And remember, we've said this before, when we think about freedom, freedom isn't the ability to do what you want to do, but freedom is the ability to live the way God intended to glorify him by loving him, by loving others, by knowing him, and by making him known. That is what God intends for you. Sin corrupts and causes that design to go haywire. 
we must constantly point one another to this freedom. And sometimes, friends, that looks like this process here. It looks like this process in 1 Corinthians 5. The goal is restoration and reconciliation. Friends, never condemnation. So, we are to live as if we are free because we are in Christ. And then secondly, we must urgently flee from sin. When sin comes, becomes apparent in your life, whether it's pride or lust or slander or bitterness, and the list goes on and on, when it is clear that we treasure Christ above all things, it must become clear that we treasure Christ above all things. When we sin and it becomes apparent, we must run from it and not coddle it or feed it or allow it to grow, but we must run. God uses the church in the life of the believer to help identify sin and flee from it. Don't hold people at arm's length. Don't let other people's mess keep you away. Don't avoid hard conversations because you think you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Sin leads to death. Do not allow a brother or sister to wither and die spiritually in the name of niceness. The kindest, most loving thing you may have to do is humbly approach someone about a blind spot where sin is lurking, preparing to sideswipe them on the interstate of life. So we are free. We must urgently flee from sin. And finally, we are holy. We are set apart. And all I'll say is this. Christ's sacrifice pays for our sin. That sets you apart. The Spirit dwells inside of you. You are being set apart. Both are true and a result of Christ's sacrifice. Let me say this as well, because this is important, and, and we have to focus on this. And as our time comes to an end, I want to say this. If you're, if you're not a sinner, the church is not a place for you. If you're not a sinner, the church is not, the, not a place for you. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, I've done some pretty terrible things in my life, I guess I have to leave. That's simply not true. That's not at all what this text is about. The church is not for sinless people. It's for messed up people who have made a lot of mistakes, who struggle through life. And if you're this morning and you've never sinned, then none of this is for you. You can walk out of here and never come back. If you are without sin, go. We'll see you later. But the fact is, <laughs> the Bible is very clear that we are all with it. We all have sin. We're born into it and we sin by choice. This text isn't saying get rid of everybody who's ever sinned. It's saying let's be working together to become more like Jesus. That means identifying sin in our lives and in the lives of brothers and sisters and fleeing from it. If you're going to sin today, you're going to. You're probably going to sin again before this day is over. And probably before the morning's over, and you only have 40 minutes. This text is all about what comes next. What comes next? Do you isolate yourself and keep sinning? Do you throw your hands up in the air and say, nobody's perfect, and keep doing the thing? Or do you turn from it? Ask others to ask you about it and to 
help you do battle with it? Do you humbly receive rebuke when it's pointed out? Do you earnestly desire not to indulge the flesh, but earnestly desire to treasure Christ above all else? That's what this text is about. We are all sinners desperately in need of a Savior. And we need the doorposts of our lives to be marked with the blood of the Lamb. And we need to live in light of it. Jesus is worthy to be praised. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you're here this morning and you're despairing because of sin that has run rampant in your life, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. His sacrifice paid for your sin. And his sacrifice made it possible for you to live in light of it, free from it. You are able to flee from it. You are set apart. You are holy. Jesus, by his blood, ransomed people from, uh, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This text is not saying you can't be part of a church if you've sinned. This text is saying we simply can't continue to wallow in it. We are free to walk out of it. We must urgently flee from it. We are holy in Christ because He is holy. We think about this text, and I'm going to pray in a moment. The, the reality is that this is for those who have put their trust in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you have no idea what that means, come talk to me. The reality is we as Christians must be living in light of the sacrifice, but we have to know what that sacrifice is. That sacrifice that God sent His Son as the only provision to make us right with Him. If you're without sin, the church is not a place for you. Friends, we all are. We're in desperate need of a Savior. Let's pray.